This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, the psychology of moving more and eating better. To some extent, the debate may be over about the value of robotic surgery in men with prostate cancer, according to new research from Victoria. But can public hospitals afford the robots? An Australian researcher into women and cancer has died. Professor Dame Ferrari Beryl has led the world's most respected cancer epidemiology group at the University of Oxford. More on her work later. And... How do you know if those memory lapses are just part of slowing down, a cognitive decline? Or are they the early signs of dementia and Alzheimer's disease in particular? The condition is called mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. About 7 or 8% of people in their 60s have MCI, rising to 1 in 4 people in their 80s. So as more people hit their 9th and 10th decades, the numbers with mild cognitive impairment will rise too. But not all are destined to develop Alzheimer's disease. The pressure on the healthcare system is going to be enormous, which is why a group of experts have come together with recommendations about detecting, assessing and looking after people with MCI. One of the authors is Associate Professor Michael Woodward, who's Director of the Memory Clinic at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Michael. Greetings, Norman and Tegan. What are the symptoms of MCI that might cause concern and tell you that it's MCI rather than just cognitive decline? It's significant memory problems, repeatedly forgetting what we've been told or what we're planning to do, repeatedly forgetting where we've left things, leaving items on or open, uh, repeating ourselves. These are more significant than just occasionally leaving your keys somewhere and forgetting where they are. Is MCI early Alzheimer's? In many people, it will become Alzheimer's disease uh, in the dementia stage. Um, About 10% of people with mild cognitive impairment move on to the dementia stage of their illness every year, and about 60% of those is Alzheimer's disease. So many people will already have Alzheimer's pathology, but not yet in the dementia stage. But how many people with MCI will go on to have nothing? Around about 20 or 30% will not ever develop any significant, uh, more significant cognitive disorder. But MCI itself is a diagnosis. It's not nothing. It's a significant problem and we do need to accurately diagnose it to know how to manage it and uh, particularly for general practitioners to better recognise and uh, further assess it. Now, we're not going to get through all six of your recommendations, but let's start with the tests and you do recommend scans. Yes, it's good for uh, most people to have at least one form of brain scan. Uh, CAT scans don't cut the mustard. We need something a bit more accurate. An MRI can be helpful, but as of the 1st of November, uh, we can now get a uh, what's called an FDG PET scan covered on Medicare, and that's very helpful in working out if there's underlying Alzheimer's or other pathology causing the MCI. Because it shows the abnormal proteins in the brain. It shows the effects of those proteins. It dampens down metabolism. So we see under metabolism in the regions of the brain. And those regions give us the diagnosis. If it's uh, what we call the default mode network, then it's likely to be Alzheimer's disease. When is it important for a GP to refer? Yeah, GPs should refer when they have... Uh, uh, a patient who is quite concerned about their memory uh, and when they do a basic screening test that shows, yes, there's something going on there. The test we recommend is called the the MOCA, but there are other tests that can be equally useful. Now, you do talk about mitigation and the sort of things that the GP could work with a person on, such as medications, lifestyle, air pollution, heart disease and so on. Just give us a a quick sense of what you can do to reduce the effects of MCI or reduce its progression. 
So we should all be living our life as if we're going to have or, or might have mild cognitive impairment because there is such a high risk, as you said at the beginning. And that means we should make sure we're getting enough exercise, 40 minutes of exercise five times a week, a bit of huffing and puffing, not just a gentle stroll. We should eat a Mediterranean-type diet, plenty of green leafy vegetables and fish and not too much fat, not too much sweets. We should make sure we keep our brains stimulated, do something every day for about 30 minutes. It might be wordles or sudokos or playing chess online and also keep our social networks active. Make sure we don't withdraw from our friends, our family and our community and also treat depression and treat deafness. And you talked about air pollution. Yeah, that's interesting. That's shown up consistently as a risk factor for mild cognitive impairment and for dementia. Now, we can't easily move our home, but uh, we can do certain things to reduce the risk of being exposed to air pollution. And deafness is about social isolation. Well, it seems to be deafness is because we're not getting the stimulation of our brain. It's not just that we're not hearing and therefore you know, having trouble understanding what's being said. Our brain is not being stimulated by noise. We see the same problem in people who are blind. They develop a range of cognitive and psychiatric syndromes sometimes. And how safe are anaesthetics when you've got mild cognitive impairment? We don't say avoid anaesthetics, but we say that don't have unnecessary anaesthetics because there is some evidence that we can be uh, worsened in our cognition after a general anaesthetic in particular. Uh, and if the anaesthetist knows that we already have mild cognitive impairment, they can make efforts to ensure that the impact of the anaesthetic is not as great as it might otherwise have been. Now, when I did my Four Corners on dementia earlier on this year, one of the things that was said, I think probably by you and by Henry Berdati, one of the other authors on the report, was that, are, that really people need multidisciplinary assessment in memory clinics. Do, we, do, you, do GPs in Australia have the right backup to get people properly assessed? There are certainly enough memory clinics around to see people at the moment. But, but they're not all multidisciplinary and well-designed. No, that's true. And uh, ideally, a multidisciplinary memory clinic, in fact, where I am right now, we have pharmacists, neurologists, uh, uh, imaging specialists, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, access to speech pathology. That's the gold standard service. We might have to rely more, however, on imaging and less just uh, on the multidisciplinary approach if we do get a, a swathe of people coming through because we are now getting drugs that are truly disease-modifying, as you discussed in that Four Corners show. And there's another one that's just been talked about last week that also looks promising. So as we get these disease-modifying drugs that, that actually stop the Alzheimer's pathology progressing, we are going to get more people wanting a diagnosis. So the process would be you've got mild cognitive impairment or a strong family history. You find something on, on the brain scan that might qualify you for one of these drugs. Should, in fact, these drugs be as um, effective as promised? I mean, at the moment, it's just a press release. Absolutely. And that's where these mild cognitive impairment guidelines or recommendations that have just been published come in. They, they give the general practitioner in particular a swathe of approaches to the person uh, because at the moment there's been nothing published in Australia about how to assess, how to manage, how to relay the diagnosis, how to monitor. These recommendations, I think, help there. But of course, the other thing is we need more research. We need particularly research in people who are at risk of mild cognitive impairment, people who have amyloid building up in their brain, but haven't yet even got symptoms. And there's a number of studies such as the AHEAD study, which is available around Australia for people with normal cognition at risk of developing mild cognitive impairment and using anti-amyloid drugs for those people. Michael, thanks you. Thank you. My pleasure. So Professor Michael Woodward is Director of Aged Care Research at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. We'll have a uh, link to that paper on our Health Report website. And this is the Health Report. 
Most of us know the basics of good health. Exercise, eat your veggies, don't smoke, don't drink too much. If you're a regular Health Report listener, we very much hope some of this has sunk in over the years. But less than one in 10 Aussies do eat enough vegetables. Less than half of adults get the recommended amounts of physical activity. The ABC has just launched a new tool that aims to help people figure out how to make one small change that could add up to a big improvement in their health. But changing the way you live is easier said than done. Luckily for us, we've got Professor Simone Pettigrew with us. She researches the psychology of motivating health changes at the George Institute. Welcome, Simone. Hello, Tegan. Where does the disconnect come between what we know and what we actually do? Yeah, it's difficult being a human these days, isn't it? There's just so much (laughs) around us that tempts us and we live in social environments that encourage certain sorts of behaviours that aren't necessarily always in our own best interests. So although behaviour is always framed or typically framed very much as being in the realm of the individual's control, we are creatures of habit and we do, um, even to a large extent, subconsciously respond to things in our environments that encourage us to behave in ways that aren't necessarily in our best interest. So it takes quite a bit of cognitive effort to live a healthy lifestyle behaviour. Well, instead of starting with individual barriers, then let's talk about environments, because sometimes we do have control over our environments and hopefully maybe some of the people who have control over bigger environments might be listening as well. What changes can do environments make in terms of workplaces, public settings, supermarkets, and how they, that has an effect on our healthy behaviours? Yeah, great question. So we know that we live in an obesogenic environment. So if you just live your life normally the way the environment prompts you, then then we'll become overweight and obese. It takes effort to work against that. So if you think about the way that your typical supermarket is laid out, you know, those end of aisle displays are usually unhealthy products. The healthy items are the ones that are on the periphery of the store around the edge where you're less likely to go. So you kind of have to work at shopping. And we always encourage people to shop around the perimeter of the store and try and avoid, and I'm sure everyone knows which of those aisles are loaded up with chips and chocolates and just best not to go there. We've seen that there are some you know, great healthy workplace options available now for employers to look at the ways that they can uh, build environments within their workplace that are conducive to people having healthy lifestyles. So whether that's getting rid of the unhealthy vending machine, providing fresh fruit as a snack, making sure that there are showering facilities, et cetera. There are certainly things that employers can also do. Showering facilities so that people can take an active mode of transport to get to work. Yeah. I mean, most Australians still commute um, either, you know, in a car or in public transport. We would just be great to get people, more people walking and cycling to work where possible just by having facilities available to encourage that. So you've worked as a consultant in this space. What are some of the key recommendations that you make to big decision makers? Well, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? Because the science is there. We, we know what works. We know that if we can provide environments in which the healthy choice is the easy choice, so that means affordability. So ideally, our healthy foods would be cheaper than our less, our less healthy foods. So we would love to see something like, you know, an added sugar tax so that could fund subsidies potentially on fresh fruit and vegetables to make sure that, you know, when you're walking around the supermarket, it's really easy to fill your basket with those healthy food products. The other thing is, and we don't realise 
the extent to which this impacts us. Everything one thinks they're immune from advertising, but, but we're really not. We've, we've got enough research now to show that just having those constant messages in your environment impacts you both consciously and subconsciously to prefer those items. So wouldn't it be fantastic, you know, if, if every bus route towards schools and around schools that there could be no unhealthy food advertising, there could be no alcohol advertising, at least keeping those kinds of environments free of junk food advertising so that kids have got a chance of developing preferences without that, you know, that constant bombardment. But of course, then we have the online environment that creates a particularly challenging uh, regulatory area. And this is, a, this is something that we've explored on the Health Report before with some of your other colleagues at the George Institute. Coming to the individual space, when people do have control over their own environments or their own decisions, where are they going to get the biggest bang for buck if they're making a small change in terms of longevity, reducing their risk of disease, reducing their risk of things like uh, cognitive impairment, as we just heard before? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, how they're all overlaid. So we would really encourage people, you know, if you focus on deprivation, it puts you in a bad mindset, whereas if you focus on what kinds of foods you should be putting in your mouth, then you're two and five, you know, those basic, basic messages that we all really know but seem almost too easy to be true. Get your two and five in each day and get your you know, minimum of 30, preferably about 60 minutes of physical activity a day. Those two things, they can create a virtuous cycle whereby you know, when you're eating better and you're exercising regularly, you actually feel more positive and, and you're willing to go that extra step. The other way around that, of course, the opposite is where, say, you have a night out and you drink alcohol and you have a lot of unhealthy foods. You, you know how you feel the next morning. You feel pretty crap. And that makes it harder to eat healthy food the next day, to get out there and do some physical activity. And that becomes a vicious cycle. So just constantly working towards adding those positive behaviours in your day that together add up to make it easier to do more of that. If there was one change we could make to the Australian environment to make Australians more healthy, what would it be? Oh, that's hard. We've got so many on our wish <laughs> Put you list. On the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, getting the food supply right. So that's going to impact both humans' physical health and also the planet. So the you know the contribution of food towards greenhouse gas emissions is enormous. So if we that one thing, if we can get our food supply right, we can look after humans today and tomorrow. And getting that food supply right means trying to steer away from this monumental wave of ultra-processed foods that now have now taken over our food mm. supply and getting back to the fruit and the veg, the whole grains, you know, the, the, the products that are more in their natural form and are much better for us physiologically. We're getting more and more evidence that those ultra-processed foods really mess up your microbiome. So in other words, the good bacteria in your gut. So we just need to try and steer away from them. But it's hard. They've got a huge amount of shelf space and they get a lot of advertising. Wouldn't it be great if we could kill all those birds with one stone? Um, Simone, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Professor Simone Pettigrew is Head of Food Policy at the George Institute and you can find the ABC's interactive health check tool at abc.net.au slash healthcheck. Robotic surgery has been enormously controversial since it was introduced initially for prostate cancer. The robot is a machine operated by a surgeon sitting at a screen and console away from the patient and manipulating small instruments. 
The robots are expensive, and like your printer, the consumables also cost a lot. But now robots are used more widely, like in joint replacement, bowel and heart surgery. But prostate surgery is where it began, with marketing that promised fewer side effects and better outcomes than having an open operation. But the evidence until now has been light on. A paper from surgeons in Melbourne reports significant benefits in terms of the cancer itself. The senior author was Damien Bolton, Professor of Surgery at the University of Melbourne and Director of Urology at Austin Health and the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Centre. Thank you very much, Norman. Appreciate the opportunity. Now, one of the things that attracted me when you actually sent me a text about this was you were not pro-robotic surgery a few years ago. You were pretty sceptical. When it came out, I was a sceptic. We had very good cancer cure results with open surgery. I have to say I've changed my tune since then. Australia has in many ways been a very early adopter of this form of technology and in fact the first randomised study of intraoperative and intrahospital outcomes on this came from Queensland from a group led by John Yaxley and Frank Gardner at uh, Royal Brisbane and we know from that study that there's reduced inpatient stay, reduced blood transfusion, reduced thromboembolic events and overall reduced complications from robotic surgery at the time of the procedure versus open operations. But what we didn't have for a long time was any data on the cancer outcomes, whether they were equivalent, better or worse. But uh, thanks to our registry, I think we're moving closer towards that now. So this is a clinical registry is something that's really common in countries like Sweden, where they've got a lot of them in different clinical areas. When you can't do randomised trials, you observe what doctors are doing, you observe the outcomes and feed that back to the doctors to actually get improved quality. And you've had this registry of prostate surgery. It's funny you should mention it because when uh, my colleague Jeremy Miller and I set up the Prostate Cancer Outcomes Registry in its very early incarnation now, about 15 years ago, we based it on that Swedish uh, registry. So yes, what we are able to do is really with the collaboration of pretty much every urologist practicing in Victoria now, and now the registry has been rolled out both interstate and uh, to include New Zealand to a degree as well. We've collected the data on their margin rates, so that is the likelihood that the entire tumour has been removed. There's no residual cancer left behind. And we've been able to collect that on and off for pretty much the entire population over that 15 years. It's been operational and now indeed for virtually every urologist in Victoria at the current time. So you've got data on nearly 12,400 people, men, who've gone through this surgery. And what you've noticed is a significant change in time. And just to explain what we're talking about, reiterate, is that when you remove a tumour, you want normal tissue around the tumour so that you're actually sure that you've got the whole cancer out. And you're calling this uh, margin positivity. So margin positivity is a bad thing because that means you've got cancer in the area which shouldn't be there. It should be normal tissue. What's happened during this time? You're exactly right in your definition there, Norman. And indeed, we have great evidence because of the use of post-operative PSA that if you've got a positive surgical margin at the time of the operation, you're much more likely to require second-line therapy, whether that be secondary radiation therapy or secondary hormonal therapy, which, of course, is what we're trying to avoid. So the cancer comes back or it never went and it spreads, and the PSA is the blood test, which can measure a rise in tumour bulk. That's exactly right. And what we want is clear margins and we want virtually undetectable PSA reading postoperatively. But uh, what we identified is that uh, over the 10-year period that we looked at, the margin rates decreased for men having open and robotic surgery, but at all points in that curve. 
the margin positive rates were much lower if you were having robotic surgery. This was constant whether you broke it down into different groups for sake of example, whether the tumour was organ confined or whether there was a small amount of extra prosthetic extension of tumour to begin with. It was the same for men of varying age, whether they were done urban or in regional centres, whether they were done in public or private hospitals. So in every group, the chances of having a positive margin were less if you had it treated robotically rather than open. Have you got any sense of just being involved in a registry? Because famously, if you just involve doctors and surgeons in registries, they're much more focused on clinical quality and things improve just because you've got a registry. That's a key point of this. And in fact, the strength of the uh, prostate cancer outcomes registry is not really the you know 12,000 patients that are within it. The strength is the collaborative initiative of all of the surgeons and the radiation oncologists now that are involved in it and their willingness to have acceptance of the results. But my point is, is tying it down to cause and effect to robotic surgery in terms of the better margins. Well, that is the key issue. And I think you make a very good point here because there is no automation in the robot. The robot has to be operated by the surgeon and just having a robot won't give you a good margin outcome rate. There's a lot of emphasis that the training and reproducibility of results is dependent upon people reskilling and constantly skilling themselves and practicing this. There's no doubt a good open prostatectomist is way better than a bad robotic one. But uh, given that we've got groups that are largely being treated one way or the other, we were able to compare them. So two or three questions just to go into the weeds a little bit. One is there's different ways of doing a prostate surgery. One is called nerve sparing, where you're trying to protect the man against uh, erectile dysfunction. It's controversial. But is there any uh, relationship between the actual surgical technique that you're embarking on rather in addition to the robotic surgery? Well, it's always a bit of a trade-off in this form of surgery. Pretty much everyone will try nerve sparing surgery where they can do. And those variations of whether it's tried or not tried tend to average out over the duration and number of patients in the registry, we believe. Because nerve sparing has been associated with poorer margins because you're trying to protect tissue. Absolutely. If you do a operation and make no effort to spare the nerves, you'll almost by definition have a very wide margin and a very low margin positive rate. But the standard of care is to try and do nerve sparing where that's appropriate and where that's possible. And the majority of the urologists in this study group will have practiced along those lines. And the next question is not related to this paper, but some of the enthusiasts at the beginning of the robotic surgery said, oh, this is going to solve the problem of erectile dysfunction and incontinence. And my understanding is that until now, there's no evidence for that. I mean, this is great news in terms of the chance of a cancer cure, but what about the other side effects of prostatectomy? Well, continence is largely dependent upon the patient selection. So most people would not recommend prostatectomy, whether it be by open or robotic means in someone who's at particularly high risk of incontinence. For sake of example, someone who had major concurrent medical issues, someone who wasn't able to do pelvic floor exercises, someone who was much greater than the sort of standard age between 60 to early 70s who would have this operation, the risks of incontinence postoperatively are much higher if you've got uh, advanced age, high body mass index and to people who do not do their pelvic floor exercises. So continence, I think, is probably a variable that we've got covered. And in fact, very few people now have significant incontinence post-prostatectomy for prostate cancer. 
the erectile dysfunction issue is a separate matter. So there's still significant rates of erectile dysfunction subsequent to prostatectomy, whether that be by open or robotic means. And of course, we have good uh, prehabilitation and rehabilitation programs for that, good mechanisms to try and do MRF sparing to minimise it, but it's still regularly identified subsequent to surgery. So next question is access in the public sector to robotic surgery, if indeed we're now we're opening the door here. And I'm aware in some states, state health departments have invested in robots, and not necessarily because they believe in them, but because they recognise that if you're going to attract trainees, trainees want to train on robots, and therefore you want a robot in-house. But every second private hospital's got a robot. What is the access to robots like in the public sector? It varies state by state. So for sake of example, in South Australia, there's a central reference port so that nearly everyone will have a robot. And in uh, Brisbane, there's a very good functioning centre. In Sydney, you have three. In Melbourne, there's really only the robot in Parkville. There are ones in smaller regional centres. Ballarat, they're about to start one. And uh, in Geelong. But for Melbourne, the greater part of Melbourne is not served by that form of technology, which is in many ways why we were able to get such large numbers for this study. And finally, how do you know that the urologist your GP is referring to, or how does your GP know that their results are good? I think the truth of that is the general practitioner does not know. We do have a mechanism whereby twice a year, the urologists who collaborate within the Prostate Cancer Outcomes Registry get feedback on their margin positive rates and in fact patient reported feedback that's done anonymously as well. Outcomes are reported to the urologists, to the hospitals where they practice and indeed we do have an escalation policy where if someone's margin rates are well above what would be expected, there's a mechanism that that's fed back to them and there's a potential for more in the way of reskilling, more in the way of improvement to happen and I think that's something we've seen regularly happen with this study and it's proved its benefit. We've been tremendously well supported by Movember, uh, largely because of this, you recognise the benefit of having this real-time feedback to the urologists concerned. So ask your urologists whether they belong to the registry. Professor Damien Bolton is Professor of Surgery at the University of Melbourne and Director of Urology at Austin Health and the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Centre. And an Australian that many of us hadn't heard of before, but who made a huge contribution to research has died, Norman. Yes, uh, Dame, uh, Professor Dame Valerie Beryl, or Val Beryl as she was also known, um, born in Sydney, uh, went to Sydney University, but spent most of her life in London and Oxford at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and, at, um, and basically ran the Cancer Epidemiology Unit at Oxford University, which is probably the best cancer epidemiology unit in the world, and she succeeded the famous Sir Richard Dahl, who made the link between smoking and cancer. Her issue was women and cancer, and here she is talking about her million women study, and this was literally into the pill, but this is the effect of alcohol on women and, bre- and cancer. We have a large ongoing study of over a million women in the UK called the Million Women Study. Followed them up for seven years and about 70,000 have developed cancer. Then we've looked at the cancer incidence in people according to how much alcohol they drank. Most women drink very moderate amounts. In fact, in our study, the average consumption was just about one drink a day. And even with such moderate amounts of alcohol, we found a statistically significant increase in a number of cancers, particularly breast cancer, cancer of the mouth, throat, 
larynx also the liver and these are all things that people had known before but what is new about this is we've been able to show that in women with very moderate amounts of alcohol you could still see an increase. So what were the dimensions of the risk? For every 100 women about 12 will develop cancer of any sort by the age of 75, 12 in every 100 and it goes up by another one which is just over a 10% increase for every additional drink that women take. So for one drink it'll go from 12 to 13 every 100. Women who drink two drinks a day it will go from 12 to 14 and so forth. Much of that excess is because of the increase in breast cancer. The other cancers like cancer of the mouth and throat and larynx and liver are quite uncommon. Professor Valerie Beryl talking on the Health Report in 2009 and her seminal work on the pill through the same study showed very little effect on breast cancer in terms of an increased risk, but a protection against ovarian and endometrial cancer. Incredible work. She'll be missed. She will indeed. And that's the health report for this week. From me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. See you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.